Hello, everyone. This is Shannon Morgan, and you are listening to the second episode of Sound Mind, a place to openly discuss the struggles in our minds, including mental health, trauma, addiction, and thought patterns that we just can't escape. I am not a counselor, and this podcast is not meant to replace professional therapy, more like somewhere you can go to find connection and learn how other people's experiences can aid in your own journey. Speaking of which, I work in the field of behavioral health as a peer and youth support specialist. Working with both adults and children, I share my personal lived experience with mental illness, trauma, and substance abuse in order to connect with clients and help them see that they're not alone, which helps them to share their journey and set goals, build hope, as well as live more self-directed and purpose-filled lives. I collaborate with therapists, case managers, and other community-based behavioral health professionals to fully support individuals in their recovery. And that is the spirit I'm trying to bring to this show. The website for this podcast is soundmindpodcast.com. There you will find links to social media, more in-depth information about the guests where you can interact with each episode by leaving comments or even sending an email. And I would love to hear from you, especially if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you have a reaction to an episode. Now, let's get to today's guest. Adriel Martinez grew up in foster care, staying in more than 20 foster homes all over the Treasure Valley and went to over 10 schools growing up. Mr. Martinez has a real passion for politics and has been heavily involved in the Idaho political scene since he was 17. Having run for office three times, he's put his bachelor's degree in political science to good use. Notably, Adriel is a decorated Army combat veteran who served two tours in Afghanistan in December 2009 through December 2010. He left the Army as an E-5 sergeant and was awarded the Army Commendation Medal, the Army Achievement Medal, two times Afghanistan Campaign Medal, Combat Infantry Badge, and the Airborne Parachutist Badge, among others. And with that, let's meet him. Hey, Adriel, how are you? Good. How are you doing today, Shannon? I'm quite well, thank you. It's a good day. It's a sunny day. It's a beautiful day. Yes, it was. It was very hot out there, but luckily at my second job, I had air conditioning, so it wasn't that bad. (laughs) Your second job, your first job, I was, holy shit. Yeah, the first job is outside. That's FedEx, but it's in the early morning, so it's Mm. really nice. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so I got off, I'd say about nine o'clock, so it was perfect. What's your second job? Amazon. Amazon and FedEx. Whole Foods Market. I shop for... Bougie Northenders. Oh, so you're the, um, what do they call them? The indispensable worker? Yeah, I'm <laughs> essential. Essential. <laughs> I'm essential too. My job is essential. And it really is essential, but it's hard. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Right now, is everybody's trying to define themselves as essential. And some people are like me and you, but other people, I don't know if they are. Like the nail salon or the mall or any of those True. other places. The car wash. I can't uh, think of anything I need at the mall that's essential right now. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to go to the mall in the first place because it's disgusting, number one. And number two, you're going to get ripped off. Cause, it's a you good know, place to do laps, though. Like if you're old and you need to go around yeah. and around and around. If you need to socialize or meet with your cousin who you haven't seen in five years, it's a nice place to go. If you need to Cinnabon and you don't want to go to Maverick, <laughs> yeah. it's a good place to go. I don't think Maverick has Cinnabon it anymore. It does. So some of them do. Oh, they still do. Trust me, I know all the Cinnabon places. Oh, okay. I know the all one, of them. The one over by my house, they got rid of it. Why don't you tell me about your upbringing? So uh, I was basically born uh, September 20th, 1990 in Elko, Nevada. Uh, my That's family, where I got made. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, <laughs> San Francisco is where I got made. So uh, my family basically moved um, from Elko or Duck Valley Reservation, more or less, is where we actually live. We moved from there up to Meridian, Idaho. My grandparents bought a house. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, growing up, it was it was interesting in, in my life. You know, foster care was crazy. And, and my mom, she was schizophrenic. She had drug and alcohol problems and, and schizophrenic people. They have uh, episodes and my mom had several of them when I was younger. And I didn't understand what it, what it was and what it meant. But, you know, thinking back now, I mean, I guess I just must have rationalized it as a child mm-hmm. because, you know, I didn't freak out really. And. Uh, and mental health wasn't a conversation that your family had about my mom had your your mom has this. It wasn't a no, discussion. Not really. My grandparents, my grandma and grandpa were just, you know, everything was kind of just, you know, casual. And mm-hmm. my, my grandpa hated my mom because she wasn't a good mom. Mm-hmm. She was a good person, actually, especially, you know, when she died. A lot of people, a lot of homeless people, she did a lot for the community. But. My grandpa did not like her because she did bad things. You know, she didn't really abuse me and my sister per se. She never really hit us hard or anything. She spanked us like anybody else and she did what she could. But she just wasn't the best of parents. And and my grandpa really got close to me. You know, like he uh, he called me little man and I called him Daw because I can't say dad because, you know, I was a child. And uh, he, he uh, um, we just got really close and my grandpa really, really attached to me. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't like my mom. And like, I would always go to my grandpa too. And I, you know, my mom would take us over there and I would go to him and be like, da, da, you know, and tell him. And then he, my grandpa was a very tall man. He was about six, three, six, four, you know, he was a little bit shorter because he hunched, you know, he got older, but he's still a lot taller than my mom. And so, you know, it was just an interesting chemistry. My grandma was a disciplinary my grandpa wasn't my mm-hmm. my grandma disciplined me she spanked me but she wasn't obviously schizophrenic like my mom didn't have some of those underlying mental health conditions and drug and alcohol abuse problems because my grandma you know she was sober she used to drink a party back in the day and so she was sober my grandpa was sober and that's they took care of me mm-hmm. you know my grandpa would wake me up every day i slept with my grandpa i think till i was like six years old or seven maybe and um he used to make me breakfast every morning they'd send me to school uh it was just it was a good uh, household to be in. And that's part of why I am where I am. You know, it's a lot of people don't even have that. The regular parents. But I did. I had it enough years where it impacted the future of my life. Yeah. I was going to ask because I know that you were in foster care a large percentage of your childhood. How did that transition from what you're describing to foster care? So my basically my mom got out of prison for the second or third time uh, my mom was you know she was on cops she was actually in a pbs documentary about homeless people uh, mm-hmm. about eight or nine years ago she somehow the judge gave her custody back instead of giving it to my grandparents which they basically had custody but like if you go to prison you know you can give custody to your your parents not like real quote-unquote custody but like guardianship yes exactly so when you get out they have to give them back to you you know so my grandparents didn't quote-unquote have full legal guardianship they just had um you know that's my parents you know they're gonna my my son is or my daughter whoever is gonna live with him which was me Mm -hmm. so i went back to my mom she got custody when i was it must have been about seven my mom had a, a severe mental breakdown and she decided that she could only take care of my my sister, you know, and because my sister's dad lived close by. He didn't live that far. He actually lived right down the street. So he was helping. Yes. Uh, my grandparents did help me. 
but my mom just, I was getting older and I, I, I didn't honestly, you know, to be honest, I, I wasn't going to put up with my mom's crap mm-hmm. because I was starting to get older and realize that she had problems. And so. How did you realize the problems? What, what was that like? What did you experience? Just, I mean, she would talk in funny voices. She would act mm-hmm. weird. She would, she drank too much, obviously. Um, she would discipline us for stuff that we shouldn't be getting disciplined for. I mean, like, you know, there was one instance where my mom was um, spanking my sister so hard that I was, I got scared and I pulled a knife. Wow. And not that I wasn't going to hurt my mom. You just wanted to scare her into stopping. Yeah. And because I was very smart at a young age, I learned mm-hmm. a lot and it did work. She called the cops, but the cops, she had a record and the cops were like, um, you know, look around the house because it wasn't like super kept up and this and that. And um, I talked to the cops. I didn't get any trouble. And my mom, after that, calmed down, you know. But Do you remember how old you were when that happened? That had been seven or eight. Oh, wow. Because that was before I went into foster care. And then shortly after, my mom actually lied and put me into Intermountain Hospital. Mm-hmm. She lied and said I had all these problems, which I never did. I never was really diagnosed, you know. I'm sure I had mental health problems as a child. but Maybe never, like post-traumatic stress or something, anxiety. Yeah. And uh, I went to Intermountain. She lied to me. She actually said we were going to the mall. And my sister and uh, me and my sister's dad all went. And me and my sister thought we were going to the mall. And like, you know, we go to Intermountain. Mm-hmm. And this is when I lost trust in my mom. As a kid, you trusted your parents. Yeah. After this... I never trusted her ever again. Yeah. And we went into Intermountain and uh, I'm like, I see the cage fences. And like I said, I'm a, I was a smart kid. My grandparents, they put me where I'm at now. Mm-hmm. And she brought me in there and, you know, it's like a hospital environment when you go to Intermountain. And I was like, what am I doing here? And then, you know, actually, you know, I'm in there locked away. My mom's like, sorry. And I come to the realization and then I freaked out and then they put me in the padded room and drugged me. and Oh, man, that must have been traumatizing. It was That's because horrible. I, there was, I didn't need to be there. Yeah. And I'm just like, what am I doing here? And I actually, I'm, I was so smart. I actually made up a story. I knew my mom had done drugs and alcohol, but I didn't see anything. But I made up a story to the counselor I talked to. Dr. Negron actually is still over there somewhere. I think he's over at the St. Al's because I work there actually as a security guard. Um, when I got out of uh, the army, when I was going to BSU, I worked as a security guard. And I seen his name. I'm like, maybe you should go talk to him and <laughs> see if he remembers me. So Dr. Negron, you know, we talked about it and I told him I seen all this white powder and stuff. And I was making all this shit up, you know, because I was smart. And I told him about this and I said, um, you know, my mom had said all this and that. But I told him who she really was. Mm-hmm. And you were she, making that part up. You're no, no, I was making the I don't think she ever had cocaine or anything like that, but I know she did that stuff, but I yeah. never seen it. I think that she was smart enough to hide that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, the alcohol is different, that's legal. So, obviously, I've seen alcohol in her fridge. But, uh, Dr. Grind, I made up this big story about all this stuff, and then the cops don't like my mom because she has a record, and I've been called to her house multiple times, you know, for all sorts of stuff like child abuse, whatever. So, uh, they called, they went over, they searched her old house. They found some stuff, evidently. I, I mean, I don't really, my mom has passed away, so obviously, and I would never ask her about that. But basically, the next day she came there and brought me like McDonald's and was like, hey, you know, I'm going to take you out to, in a day, you know, whenever I can get you out because she knew she was wrong. I should have never been there. They put me on drugs like Paxil, and I didn't need that. And 
I never fit in with that. You know, there was kids in there that had serious issues. And looking back. Well, sometimes I don't I don't have a fault with going to Intermountain or any hospital. Like sometimes you need to go. No, I've been to a hospital yeah. before. Sometimes you need to go when you need help. Yes, you do. But I didn't. Right. I got put in there because my mom couldn't take care of me. Mm-hmm. You know, she wanted to drink and party. And I started getting older and, you know, recognizing things. And I would tell my grandparents and my grandpa would get pissed off. And, you know, what I'm saying he would threaten my mom with his cane. He never actually did anything to her because he wasn't a bad guy, obviously. But, uh, you know, I got taken out of there real quick and I never trusted my mom after that again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was on Paxil, which is an antidepressant. I didn't need to be on it per se. And I was a zombie at school. My grandparents were worried and and the counselor, my teachers were like, what the hell? And they took me off it eventually, you know. And so um, experiences like that. You know, is why, like, looking back, I understand that mental health is a, it's a serious thing, mental mm-hmm. health awareness. And, you know, it's... Well, imagine if your mom would have got the help she needed, how different your life would have been. It would have been a lot different. She never yeah. did. She never did. She did, but she didn't. Right. And so, you know, after that, basically, I think the next summer, it was after that. I think that was the previous summer because I, I went to Whitney and then the next summer... I believe between fourth and fifth grade, uh, she had a mental breakdown. She couldn't take care of us. Speed down the road, my mom has that midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. So I went to go live with my friend and his family. But unfortunately, his mom was in California vacationing at the time. Uh, well, I did go. She was there. Then she left like the day after I got there. And his dad was doing truck driver training in California mm-hmm. um, because he went to go drive for uh, JR England or CR England. So I stayed with their family and uh, they uh, they had two like their cousins, I guess, or they would be their nephew and niece or whatever. And they uh, things didn't work out with them and, and they just were really immature. They weren't, you know, they shouldn't have been taking care of kids, number one. And uh, we got we had an incident between me and them. And, and next, you know, the cops got called and the cops um, took me down and they, you know, called the. Uh, uh, a couple people, the social worker came down. They illegally put me in foster care. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't exhaust our resources to find my grandparents or anybody that was blood, you know, related. I gave them the only number I knew, which was my babysitter that I uh, can't even remember her name, but I used to go and my, she would babysit me and I was friends with her son and, and they had, you know, all babies or whatever else. So we used to play video games there and, uh, but she didn't get a whole, you know, she didn't get back in time and they legally put me in foster care. And that's kind of where it all started. I legally got put into foster care. And the time you're in foster care, you were in more than 20 houses. Is that true? Yes. Regular homes and group homes. I basically, you know, I, the average time I was in a place is probably six months. Mm-hmm. I, I'd say at best. The the very first one that I was in was probably the longest. I got put in it and then I went to go live with my grandparents because the foster care, you know, they, you can live with your blood relatives. They don't have to get all all this crazy background checks. But my caseworker, Scott Crandall, I'll never forget him. He uh, decided I was too young and wild to live with my grandparents, which I wasn't. I didn't get in any trouble. I went and had fun, but I would always show up at the end of the night. You seem kind of high energy, though. I can see how they would be like, meh. Yeah, yeah. No, I was. <laughs> I used to go out there and I used to go and... You know, try to burn fields down and break irrigation, ditch things and stuff like that, you know. We had the same kind of childhood in that way. Like, it was just free. Yeah. Like, you just go out and you just go get in trouble, do whatever you wanted to do between the hours of 3 p.m. when you got out of school until 10 yep. p.m. when the sun set. And then you had to be 
your ass had to be home. Yep. You had a territory that you roamed. That's and that's right. what I did. And it was up and down in the neighborhoods around Pine Street around our house. Mm-hmm. So, but Scott Crandall was like, well, your grandparents and my, and he pressured my grandparents into it because they're older and, you know, they're not going to try to lie to him. And he asked some certain questions and, um, you know, and they were sad after that. They're like, you know, we shouldn't ever, you know, they shouldn't ever even talk to him and like, you know, tell him basically F off. And so they put me in a real false home, which I actually went back to that original one. Mm-hmm. And I live with, it was Jeff and Julie Gobby. I lived on Cole Road, um, over close to Capitol High School. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a really good experience. But foster care, they, you, it's all short term. You can't stay at a place too long or you get attached. Yeah. They want to move you around, get people sorted so the foster families don't adopt so they can keep, you know, they're, they're basically like, you know, they keep cycling them through. They're using them kind of like, uh, um, you know, when a dog gets uh, has babies, baby like a puppy mill, but a foster care mill. Yeah. And they keep cycling them through so they don't settle down and they stay foster parents. Well, that's not, I mean, I think about that 20 different schools during that time frame from we're talking 10 to 18. Well, about 10, about 10, about 10 to 12 schools. 10 to 12 schools. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So some of about the schools. 20 foster homes. Yeah. 10 some 12 of the schools, schools I was able to attend and then even, even go long distance. It was crazy. Like I was going to Birdie in high school and I was coming from. From uh, I think Homedale or I can't remember. It was crazy, but um, after that first, after Jeff and Julie, I started just going into all these crazy foster homes and just having to deal with real psycho foster kids who had real serious mental health problems. And mm-hmm. you know, I had my own issues, but nothing like a lot of these kids had, and they weren't getting treated. They were just so you're like a mild mental health issue, like maybe anxiety and depression, and then you're thrown in with kids that have serious mental health yeah, issues that. Uh, or maybe are aren't being treated. Yes, and sexual predators, violent predators. Yeah, uh, you know all these kids I know now have ended up in prison. Some of them are dead. Yeah, you know they, and I got thrown with all that bag because foster care doesn't sort you by you know this or that. They just throw they don't you. sort you by mildness to severeness. Yes. They just you go where there's an opening. And there was one house I lived in over by uh, Willow Lane Park. Um, it was I I talked to you about it before and. The kids that lived there, like, that was probably one of the more traumatizing foster homes I went in. I had to watch my back. I had to sleep with one eye open because mm-hmm. I literally slept in the room next to a sexual predator. Yeah. Ended up basically molesting another kid at the house while mm-hmm. I lived there. Um, and uh, and I went to school with him. You know, I had to go to school with him every so day. So you knew he was trouble. Like, you met him and you knew, like, some, there was a problem. Yeah, no. He had a, there was an incident between me and him and I had to let him know that, you know, Nobody was going to mess with me and nothing right. was going to happen to me, you know, and um, he was a little bit taller than me, but he was a little skinny guy and I mm-hmm. put him in his place. I would have beat him up easy, but it's sad that you had to do that, though, that you had to protect yourself on that way. I mean, it that's is, tough. and that's just the fact of foster care. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's not a good system. It's broken. And, you know, a lot of the foster uh, parents who do it, they only do it for the money or for some sick reason like Joe. I think he had severe PTSD and issues from being in the military. And mm-hmm. even his ex-wife, she lived in the house behind us. She was a really nice person. She was a really cool person. All of us liked her and they go, liked to hang out with her, but she wasn't our foster parent. Mm-hmm. Nobody liked Joe. He was he was a terrible foster parent. I ended up running away one time and I had to call my grandparents to come get me because it was just such a traumatizing place, you know. And, and it's crazy, too, because actually my mom came and visited me and we used to hang out. But... um it was just too much and I ended up Would getting, you prefer the chaos of your mom to foster care if you had to choose? Um, I'd say 
probably my mom because um, my grandparents were still alive. I was getting older, so she couldn't do anything to me. Yeah. You know, so I could, by the time I started getting that old, like I was stronger than my mom. So there's nothing she could do, you know, and I mm-hmm. basically would have been my house. But so how did these experiences, you, did, you went to the military very young. Yeah, How did was, these experiences was, shape that decision to go in the military? I I really enjoyed the academic portion of school uh-huh. because of, to get away from all that, you know, because yeah. I had to deal with so many places with just, you know, some of the worst type of people. And uh, I really enjoyed the academic portion and sports. And, and I always would stay for extracurricular activities. Uh, you know, sometimes my school day would be seven to six. Mm-hmm. You know, I go home and do some homework and sleep. And. Uh, you know, I, uh, uh, my, I think it was my senior year, my junior year. No, it was my senior year. The very beginning, uh, I talked to my chem, my AP chemistry teacher who was really cool. He's an old guy. His name was, um, Jim Custer. He was a adjunct, uh, um, professor over at CWI while he taught AP classes, uh, for the chemistry, uh, program over at, uh, NAMP high school. And he was uh, ex-Special Forces. He, he talked to me and, you know, he's like, because uh, he was actually really cool, like for an older guy that just, you know, he's a, he's a Republican or a conservative person. And, and you know, you, a lot of times um, you just don't know. And, and like you'd say, mo- some people will say, oh, more English or whatever teachers are going to be nicer to you or whatever. And um, he, he just opened up to me and I told him about my situation and it could have been, you know, it could have been counselors and the principals talking about it to him. Who knows? I don't know. Cause I was a kid. Uh, and I don't know everything that went behind the scenes, but he really talked to me and he told me I should look at joining the military. It could help reshape my life. Mm-hmm. And I had the recruiter come. I took the ASVAB. I scored really high, uh, the pre ASVAB. Then I went, took the real one and I scored at the top, like, uh, you know, quartile percentage or whatever. And I decided that I was going to join and I had always kind of known because my buddy Mike and me used to play army and this and that. And um, we had a lot of fun because you spend that at his house all the time. And so I basically decided that I was going to uh, join the military at seven or 18, I guess, about 17. You know, I turned 18 at the beginning of my senior year because I was kind of older for my class. And, uh, I decided I was actually going to, uh, graduate a semester early. And, um, that was before I joined the military. I, I just wanted to graduate a semester early. So I did summer school. I actually took a bus all the way out from the Carter mall all the way to Boise and then biked to the challenger school in um, Boise. And, uh, I, cause I wanted to get ahead in life and mm-hmm. I, I didn't know I was joining the military at this time. I just was kind of over high school cause high school just, it's drama. It's really mm-hmm. not, high school diploma doesn't mean anything anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I joined the military and uh, it was in basic while everybody else was still in school. And uh, I, uh, you know, it was just something that was always there. My grandpa was in the military. Uh, a lot of my family, then the native side, you know, we, I had family that was uh, Navajo code talkers and, mm-hmm. and uh, um, it just basically, I was predetermined, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it definitely, after everything that I went through, it helped me. It made me tougher going into it. And um, after everything I saw in the military, because my military experience was definitely not easy. I didn't get to Skype my mom every day, Mm -hmm. you know, and have hot chow four times a day in a hot shower every day. You know, I wasn't one of those guys, you know. And so 
my military experience, everything before that prepared me for it mm-hmm. in a way. It made me hardened mentally. And not to say that, you know, people with mental health problems aren't, uh, you know, they're weak or whatever. It's just every person is different. And I'm how not weak and I have mental health issues. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're tough. Yeah. yeah. yeah you're one of the I toughest think it's more I've... about the, the, the treatment that you get and how you approach it and how you manage it. Yes, but... exactly. And whether or not you can accept it. Yeah, exactly. Because a lot of people, uh, when you're a kid, it's different. But when you're an adult, a lot of people don't want to accept it. They want mm-hmm. to just, woe is me, this, that. But it's out there. The help is out there. It's not as good as it should be. And especially Idaho. We're one of the worst states, unfortunately, yeah, for like mental this, health. The bottom, the bottom, like 49th state worst in the union. Yeah, it's, I tell people, like a lot of friends and family I've had, I say, you know, you're probably best off moving to California or something. Because mm-hmm. you're going to get more help. You're going to, yeah. the, the government, the system is going to be able it's to help sad. you. It's sad. It's so true, though. Like, if you need help, this isn't a good place to be. No, it's not. I mean, we try our best, those of us in the mental health care system, to, to do what we can, but the funding isn't there. No, there's no money. And it's, uh, you know, here it's been it's been a little bit too institutionalized yeah. because it's so easy to do that. Because there's, there's other stuff you can do. You know, you can give medicine and, and do these other treatments, but we, you have to think, uh, you know, a big circle of, of mental health. Like there's all sorts of stuff. You can't yeah. just pick three avenues, right? You got to do whatever helps that person. Right. And so everybody's different. You know, some people need medicine, some people need weed. Right. And you need to smoke a lot of weed and take <laughs> we edibles. We can't talk about that in Idaho cause it's not legal, no, but yeah. I, you know, I agree. And there are psychedelics. There are a lot of different alternative therapies that we should consider yes. but that we can't consider cause they're not legal. Well, not yet. It will be eventually. eventually. Idaho, uh, Idaho, uh, more or less, I'd say maybe next year because not not because of they care about anybody or because it'll be popular because they need the money because we're yeah. so broke right now. That and everyone is like behind it. So yeah. whoever's going to run for president is like legalize it, and everyone's yeah. like, I want for you. Well, if, if Biden if Biden wins, it'll get legalized in all the states. He doesn't personally want to legalize it, but the Democrats, if they win the Senate and some other things happen, it'll get legalized, and that'll help a lot of mental health people because yeah. marijuana and psychedelics, like you were saying, there's certain natural elements from this earth that mm-hmm. will, really can help people open their minds and calm them yeah. and relax them. You yeah. know, like alcohol, definitely. No, I like to have drinks, you know, but I've always been able to contain myself. But alcohol, I would say, you know, don't use that as a, some people are just like, I like to relax, have a drink. Like it just doesn't work. Yeah, like that. I've, I've used alcohol to escape, which isn't good because you're escaping. You're not dealing with things. You're, yeah. you're covering it up and you're burying it. And I'm guilty of that at certain points in my life. But it was only when I stopped doing that that I was able to overcome the yeah. issues that I have. Well, I don't want to say overcome them, but just accept that, hey, this is part of my personality. Yes. And this like, is like who I am. So I'm going to deal with it like I would. I have two arms. So I have to do left and the right arm and I got to learn how to use them. Yeah, exactly. You you just have to. And that's the thing. A lot of people, you, you have to be able to take the step. Mm-hmm. You can't just have everybody help you. A lot of people, they want to seek help, but they really don't. And I dealt with that in the military. Yeah. I knew a lot of guys that, you know, some of them were passed away. They've killed themselves or whatever. And I tried to help them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thinking back, I'm like, it sometimes it haunts me because I'm like, maybe I just wasn't nice enough or didn't hang out with him enough, you know? And, and one of them that, um, you know, he ended up killing himself after I, I left the unit. And I, I, I remember like the last time we talked, we talking about that stuff and we were on deployment and he was huffing canned air 
and he was having a rough deployment because my second deployment, our unit was just very bad. We have terrible leadership and our first sergeant and, and company commander got fired within four months of being there, which is really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And so uh, basically, you know, he just, he had some serious mental health problems and, and he, uh, I think he, yeah, he, you know, he hung himself in the barracks. This was probably about six months after I got out of the military mm-hmm. and I seen on his Facebook a couple of posts about it. And I just thought, you know, maybe if I would have got to him and I told him, I said, you need to get a mental health charge and you need to get out and go seek help. You, the, being in the military is a very bad thing for a lot of people with mental health problems because yeah. the military doesn't help you. Well, you did two tours in Iraq and that alone is a pressure cooker. Afghanistan. Oh, I'm sorry. Afghanistan. I'm not, I'm not uh, old enough to have been to Iraq, Iraq. that many yeah. times. Excuse me. <laughs> I messed that one up. But yeah, that, that whole situation is a pressure cooker. Yeah, um, it's, you know, my two deployments. So, you know, going into the military after being in foster care, it was tough. But I just constantly, I always had a goal. Even if, when I was in foster care and just growing up, I always looked at a goal, right? In the military and basic training, I, I wanted to pass. I want to become a proficient soldier. I want to get in better shape, this or that. Uh, I wanted to be a good soldier and I wanted to serve my country. Uh, so I did really good. I was one on top of my class, my basic. And I got to my first duty station in Vicenza, Italy. And uh, uh, I basically, uh, they were on training rotation. And mm-hmm. uh, when I first got there, I was an idiot. I got drunk a couple t- too many times because I was 18. I could drink legally and made a fool of myself. But the unit got back from the training and then they started lighting me up. And I was the newest, youngest guy in my platoon and, and um, in my squad. Uh, they really, they, they dig into you. And a lot of it's hazing, you know, unfortunately. And I never did any of the stuff that happened to me because a lot of it, I would never do to somebody else because it's just, it's very, very disrespectful and it's uncalled for. You can train somebody and you can get on them because you need to, so they can save somebody's life. But then there's the next level of, you know, what they did. And it was just complete harassment and hazing. And I never did that Mm -hmm. to my people and all my guys. I still talk to a lot of them. They all respected me and they didn't look at me as a pushover, but you know, I got toughened up and, and because of foster care, they helped me because all the guys, they couldn't take that. And, and they just, you know, get their demeanor changed. And I'm surprised a lot of those guys, then nothing happened to them or they didn't, you know, do anything to any other soldiers. But I, you know, my first deployment was pretty rough, too, because I was in the Kunar province in northeast Afghanistan. They made a couple movies, uh, Hornet's Nest. One of them is actually uh, the 10th Mountain Task Force took over for us and they lost a lot of people. And. Uh, the Restrepo movie was in the same kind of area where they built this base in this freaking valley and in the middle of nowhere in northeast Afghanistan, the Gondragal Valley or the Korangal Valley. So, uh, there was a lot of action. It was very kinetic, is what the military says. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're in a you're in an area that's very kinetic because there's a lot of shooting. You know, it's kinetic energy. So, my first deployment was it was pretty crazy, uh, and. Uh, I had to deal with hazing still, even while we deployed. And, you know, there's a couple of times where I, you know, I had to go talk to the chaplain and because my leadership, you know, they're being douchebags. There's a difference between training your people. And I was always one of the best soldiers in my platoon. Mm-hmm. I got promoted pretty quick to PFC and um, obviously specialists down the road. And, but I, you know, everything that I grew up with, it helped me prepare myself for that because when you're deployed, because we're not in a real, we're not in real wars where we have to worry about getting killed every second or like 
going D-Day or the Japanese or, or the, even the Koreans, the, you know, the Korean War, the Chinese, we barely lost anybody. Mm-hmm. We lost more soldiers to suicide. So the actual engagement, you actually had to worry a lot about the other soldiers being basically douchebags to you and your, in your leadership because they get bored. You know, because we didn't see enough action. Because when we were on the big base, yeah, we might get shot of mortars or rockets, but we never, nobody died. It was just when we were outside the wire. So you were fighting your own people plus the enemy. Yeah. You know, because it wasn't like we were some special forces or, or you know, some good unit that everybody's cool. You know, it's everybody's competing to be who's the hero or get to get the awards or whatever. So and it's like high school. It is. No, the military has turned into that. Mm-hmm. It's not as disciplined as it was even through basic. I wasn't very impressed. Our military has changed a lot. And but uh, and some of the stuff I've seen, you know, now to this day, we still talk about it soldiers that I served with and and you know it's like I would never do that again I would never go active duty again yeah you know I'd go National Guard or whatever and and maybe deploy or you know obviously if the World War Three happens I'd have to you know go wherever I could well but, now you'll be deployed to fight your own citizens they're using the National Guard and the Civil Rights Movement to fight yeah. these civil rights battles no that's yeah President Trump that's totally unconstitutional and almost every high-ranking general from anywhere from now to back to colin powell is like no we can't do that yeah you don't do that to your people and even the national guardsmen they didn't give them weapons and they didn't know what to do they made tiktok videos because Mm -hmm. they're not trained to doing that and they shouldn't be and a lot of them are like what am i here yeah that was the argument that they're not trained to deal with peacekeeping they're trained to kill they're trained to go into combat situations not to civil rights marches yeah no i from my my training is an infantryman which is what they who they deployed i we don't have that training yeah that's military police and they don't have enough of them to spare to deploy you know and and so you know that was just but my second deployment was the one, you know, where I, it really took a toll on me because my unit was good. In my first deployment, my might had dickheads and douchebags, but mm-hmm. the unit was good. The 173rd Airborne was one of the best military units in the whole army. I mean, we have our own patch and we're a brigade, 5,000 soldiers. Patches are usually divisions, 20,000 soldiers. Mm-hmm. So you get 82nd Airborne, 101st Airborne, 20,000 soldiers, two-star general. We had a full bird colonel, an 06. 5,000 soldier brigade with our own patch. Wow. Because we're awesome. So I PCS to Fort Lewis, Washington from Vicenza. And immediately I was getting ready for another deployment. I Mm -hmm. spent half of my time active, two years deployed. So my second unit was just awful and the worst leadership and and soldiers, a lot of them who'd never seen combat like myself, even same rank as me, Mm -hmm. you know. And so there's animosity there, but the, all the young soldiers like me. They respected me. There's animosity because you'd seen combat and they haven't? Yes. Okay. I had more experience in them. They Just because you're in the military in the same rank, you've been to little schools or whatever, for infantry or combat arms, it's all about deployments and combat. Yeah. That's what we do. You know? And so if you don't have that, you're a nobody. You could have all these, you could have been to air assault school, airborne school, scuba school whatever these dumb badges but you haven't used it yeah no you don't use that overseas so it's like officers a lot of times they come in with all these awards and you know they come from west point with the same amount of awards as us and and it's like no they don't no they don't know what they're doing they get people killed but my second deployment was really rough we saw a lot of combat a lot of ieds more ieds because we were in Mm -hmm. uh 
RC East. We were in RC North before. I think RC North was Kunar. RC East was Kandahar, which is uh, kind of in the middle towards the eastern part of Afghanistan. It's it's desert. It's, mm-hmm. Kandahar is the spiritual homeland of the Taliban. Mm-hmm. So they uh, basically, you know, they hated us. RC East, not as much the villagers, but in Kandahar, everybody, you know, it's like... Even they, they tried to rip us off when we were buying food for them. And they're like, be careful. They're going to poison your food. But no, they didn't really. Those kids, like, the food was really good. You buy it and they're like, you're gonna sh- you know, you're going to shit your guts out. And I was like, nah, actually, it was pretty good. But, uh, you know, it was just IEDs is mostly the thing. Was, there were so many IEDs because it's in the desert. It's easier to plant them than in the mountains. Mm-hmm. So we lost a lot of soldiers' IEDs. And they didn't even necessarily die. They just lost their legs and arms and their privates yeah and so um you know the deployment was rough and i remember i was i had went to the big base for something and sometimes you go to the big base the battalion fob Mm -hmm. and we go there to shower do laundry our base was called a company outpost a cop and we didn't really have as much facilities and so we'd go there every once in a while we'd we'd say we're going on a mission right and we go there which was you know they were probably 10 miles away or something and we drive there in our vehicles and uh we go do our laundry or do whatever go hang out there relax uh, you know and basically uh i had went in in, in the deployment kind of rough we had lost some guys and and so well this other soldier private martinez at the time i was specialist you know soon to be sergeant um he private martinez he got blown up and everybody was like, is that, was that you? You know, cause the Martinez, cause I hadn't been promoted sergeant. I was basically, I got promoted. So like, they were wondering if you were the one that got blown up. Yes. Because okay. of Martinez, like I wasn't a sergeant. So they say Martinez, Martinez could be E one, three, four. Once you're a sergeant, it's like Sergeant Martinez. And I was an E four promotable. So I was waiting on the, the points, you know, you, you go to a board and then you pass the board, but then there's a point system and it's either high or low, depending on if they need people. And so I was waiting two months. I only waited two months because I had college and all sorts of another deployment. So I had a lot of points, but everybody's like, what's Martinez is it? And it was the other one. I'm like, damn, that's, that's crazy. I just seen him the other day. He lost both of his legs. No. And, you know, it was like, everybody just was thought it was me. And I'm like, they're like, oh my God, they were shaking my hands and hugging me. And I'm like, I just, I didn't know how to feel. I was like, like, what do I feel like? I'm a, I'm a better person than him or whatever. Like, or maybe I'm just luckier. Yeah. And, you know, like after that, it just got worse. You know, we had, we, our leadership got fired. Like I was talking about and, they we had a lot of soldiers go home for mental health. I almost went home. You were talking about that in a conversation we had about how um, you went to therapy, but it wasn't as helpful as talking to other soldiers about what they've been through. Yes. You know, before that deployment, after the other deployment, we we're forced to go to that stuff and talk to strings, get medicine. And a lot of us just get sleeping pills. And I did that. And I can tell you that talking to counselors doesn't really do much. It's talking to senior soldiers because there's a lot of soldiers that I would have been one of them myself down the road. Mm-hmm. You know, because like if I still was in right now, I'd be a, a first sergeant, possibly a sergeant major because of you know I'm high speed, and so um, you go to somebody like me when I was an E7 a couple of years ago. Let's say I'm an E7, I'm on my fourth or fifth deployment, which I would have been. 
they would have talked to me and, you know, I would have talked to them out and I could have saved lives, you mm-hmm. know? And I think about that and sometimes it makes me ashamed that I didn't stay in, but at the same time I had to get out for my mental health. Mm-hmm. But I had those seniors, you know, sergeants, like one of them, Sergeant First Class Louis Ledesma for my first unit. Uh, he actually became platoon sergeant in my old company because I moved companies because the deployment was really rough and I had really bad terms with my leadership. So I ended up moving to a different company in the battalion. So him and a couple other guys, you know, I had I, I served with some good guys. Sergeant Snyder, he was an E6 from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, these guys... They were good guys. They never messed with you about rank. They never talked down to you. Even Sergeant Navas was my second platoon sergeant. You know, he, he actually passed Sergeant Snyder in rank because Sergeant Snyder was, you know, and Sergeant Navas was a just more high-speed guy. And, you know, I stood up, prayed rest, gave them the military respect, but they never treated me bad. They never, they told me what to do, but they never had to yell at me because I was a good soldier. Mm-hmm. I never got any harassment from them. Um, even the Sergeant Major both sergeant majors, you know, I just, I had some bad guy, you know, and part of it, their deployment before ours was rough. They probably shouldn't have been in still. I think they should have got out. I, hopefully they did eventually, you know, cause they were broke anyway. They had their bones and bodies were broke, but you know, my second deployment, we had an incident that really kind of broke the spirits of the company and our platoon. And, and shortly after that, we ended up having to move our duty stations in Afghanistan because we were no longer combat effect. So we we couldn't patrol areas and maintain security. I mean, there was periods where people were everybody was asleep at the guard post. So we could have got every one of us could have got massacred. And now I say this now because I can. You know, obviously nobody's gonna come and be like, "Hey, you can't say that's top secret." Like, no, dude, I'm out, bro. I'm out. But one of our platoon sergeants, we got we got our second platoon sergeant because our my first one in that second unit. Sergeant Barth, he was just an old guy who never went on missions, just trying to get his retirement. He was just broken. He wasn't in shape. Well, a lot of the soldiers that I interviewed when I was a journalist said they stayed in because they felt like they had a duty to their other soldiers to share what they had. Yeah, that to is. To save lives, to, to keep making sure that they stayed alive. Yeah, to teach them the next generation. Mm-hmm. And I probably should have, but I just, I had to get out. And I, I think I did save lives. I think I saved lives. Not only on the battlefield, but I think that there's people I still talk to to this day that probably would have killed themselves. Yeah. And they called me and, and, you know, a lot of people know they can talk to me and um, it's a lot to think about. And I don't try to think about it because there's so many of them. I'm like, I mean, there's some that kill themselves and I'm like, maybe I just, I remember on the deployment, there was a moment where I could have been like, hey, you know, or after the deployment, I was so fucking tired, you know, and yeah. so just exhausted and just... You can't help everybody. It's unfortunate. And this incident happened with my platoon sergeant. He, we got a new platoon sergeant. It was a good guy. He was trying to make stuff happen. You know, I, I got promoted finally and he wanted me to, he put me in a squad leader position as a new E5, which is the E6 position. And it pissed off a lot of people because I surpassed people that have been in the unit longer, but it's like, it doesn't matter how long you've been in the unit, imagine what you've done in the army. The army is all about, you know, it's about unit loyalty, but also transitioning to other units and being the best you can be by taking parts from certain other units. And just Army wants you to transfer around. They don't let anybody stay at a duty station longer than a couple of years. They want everybody in the Army to pass around so they can pass on what they learn to the next unit. And we lost our platoon sergeant. He'd only been on platoon sergeant for like two months, um, Sergeant Montero. 
he was a young guy. He made his seven and seven. Um, he was only like 26 or tw- let's see. He was like 18. He was like 26 years old or 27. He wasn't very old and he got blown up. We had a mortar attack right outside our base because our unit was just garbage. We got literally attacked right outside our base. Literally. And he got blown up. He got hit by a mortar and, and blown away, you know, about 10, 15 feet. That's so sad. And, um, you know, I, I laid down. We, we I was in contact. I engaged the enemy and, and a lot of the guys around, you know, they didn't know what they were doing, but I knew where they were. The enemy was and. You know, I had a lot of a couple 40 millimeter grenades. Uh, you know, I was, I had an M4. I shot that. Um, we ended up having to uh, take his body back to the helicopter. We had to do a medevac right outside our base because it was just, he was hurt. I mean, I'll never forget the smell of burnt flesh. I smelt it before, but I'll never forget that because I was so close to him because I helped, I helped personally carry him mm-hmm. because people were just weak and tired and, and a lot of people just were out of it because they, they got hit by the concussion of the blast. He literally was right next to it. He's lucky he even survived. He ended up losing both of his legs and one of his arms, but we went and took him. And, um, I remember carrying him the whole way. I was the only person that freaking didn't drop the damn stretcher. Didn't like, you know, I'm like, cause you know, it's, it's a different unit. Obviously my first unit would have never had any of these issues, but I carried him all the way. And, you know, I was telling people, I told the mine person, you know, check for IEDs still because we didn't necessarily walk on that area. And, you know, because I had leadership ability and, and even in contact, mm-hmm. you know, and I put him on the thing and I said bye to him. And I never seen him again because he went to Houston and to the burn specialist place. And but the incident, you know, amongst others, it's just like it's a lot for you. Like I, I wouldn't mind reaching out to him, but I've never talked to him, and I just don't know if I can because I just be, he was one of my idols because he was such a good sergeant, you know. Yeah. To see him, you know, I don't know if he's alive still. You know, he could have committed suicide because he's, you know, one arm left, and he has junk blown off just like Martinez. He lost his junk, and he had a wife, and so, um, yeah, no, it was definitely something that I'll never forget, and you know, I. It made me who I am, though, because you remember people like that and what they did and, and your mental because I was mentally strong. I mean, after that, a lot of people went home after that incident. We lost another three or four to mental health. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had to stay there because I just the men needed me. And I stayed there till the very end. And it really did not help. But I feel like I'm going to save lives, suicide or whatever. And. Well, would, how you were saying that a lot of you guys lost a lot of men to mental health discharge just, to more than that than than death. They just basically, you know, it's as some say it's cowards. Well, you just I'm just mental health. I can't do this. I can't. You know, I'm going to kill myself. And then they just they got so serious about mental health. And this time, this was like 2011. That they just they send him to the shrink and in the big base, Kandahar, Bagram, Airfield, which are the huge bases. They go see some officers a shrink, and they, if they had any prior deployments, they would send him home. So not every one of them needed to go home, but it was that easy. I could have went home, you know. And I, I hate to, I hate to refer to it as a coward's way out because I think that people not, that really have mental health issues no, yeah, should leave. About half of them should and half of them like the doc that for instance the doc that we had that helped Sergeant Montero he had been talking the whole deployment he thought it was the best cockiest person in the world coward's way out 
and everybody made fun of him. You know, he ended up getting discharged from the military. He was a coward. I never liked him at all. He was just, he didn't even know what he was doing. I actually had to help him during that incident. But well, let's let's transition from this topic to your other career. So you left the military. What happened? So I, I got out and like I said, I stopped drinking. Uh, I stopped partying. I stopped even hanging out with women. I just went to the gym, you know, play video games. That's it. I watched a lot of, uh, I remember when I was getting on the last month and a half, I watched a lot of Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z. Mm-hmm. And uh, I uh, I talked to a lot of soldiers. They'd come and drink in my room with me. And, and sometimes, you know, I did, didn't drink for six, six months and I did. But they come and talk to me and they'd be like, oh, they'd be really drunk and emotional. And i go pick them up from the bar or whatever. And they'd be like, Sergeant Martinez, I'm going to fucking kill myself or I'm going to kill somebody. I'm like, I'm like, don't do it, dude. I'm like, let me come get you. And uh, I... Uh, you know, I was like, I'm done. The military just, it's not what it's cut out. You know, it's not like it used to be. It's gotten worse and more politicized and this mm-hmm. and that. And, and I said, you know, I'm getting out. I want to go back to school. I applied to BSU. I, I had actually went to University of Maryland online in Italy. And then I had went to Central Texas College at Fort Lewis, Washington, which is by Tacoma. And so I transferred to BSU as a sophomore and I got accepted. Obviously, they're not going to not accept me, my GPA in military, you know. And obviously GI Bill, so it's easy money for them. But uh, I got accepted and I decided to get out. And I had actually, you know, rewind. I had worked for the Walt Minute campaign. He won a congressional election, the only Democrat to win a federal election in Idaho in the last 40 years. Uh, Before him, I think it was Larry LaRocco, which was uh, about 40 years ago. And Walt Minnick was in 2008. So... I worked on his campaign. I helped Obama and I did a bunch of other stuff. And 2008 was the first year I could vote. September, I turned 18. So I had that experience and I kind of, that all kind of got wiped out because everybody had left. They had gotten better jobs and the Democratic Party was different. And I came back and I started going, I took, uh, decided to join the political science program at Boise State because I like politics and also history and Mm -hmm. government, civics in general. And, uh, I started going to BSU uh, and, you know, basically uh, part of this was my healing process too from everything. I wanted to just relax and just go to school and chill, you Mm -hmm. know, maybe uh, hang out, drink on the weekends, play video games, uh, not have some stressful nine to five job, which I'm glad I didn't do right after being out of the military because, you know, getting out of the military, my anxiety and my stress levels were just and my blood pressure. Mm-hmm. I've I've always just constantly had high blood pressure and it'll always be like that. And it's just because I'm always on on alert and on edge. Like on the fourth of July recently, I I it was hard to sleep, you know. I just don't like fireworks anymore. They don't yeah. sound the same. If you've been in a war zone, you won't be out there, you know, some of these patriots, quote unquote, love yeah. the fireworks. I'm like, you've never been in a war zone before, buddy. You and your freaking little militia hang out in the woods it's on the weekend. It's not what it's cut out to be. And so college was kind of a healing thing for me. I was a huge BSU fan. So I got to watch a lot of games for free, even though I was paying obviously tuition, but, uh, you know, I got to go to my classes, learn more about politics and government, how things work. And it was definitely a fun experience. And uh, I got to learn more about people in my community. I volunteered Mm -hmm. for some campaigns. I actually ran for city council in 2015. Um, it was a, more of a social experiment i lost but i got 8600 votes and mm-hmm. i didn't spend i spent like 150 bucks my opponent spent like like thirty five thousand dollars or something and uh i got 31 percent of the vote uh 
I, I've just been maintained, you know, that involvement. I, I down the road, I worked for Bernie Sanders. Uh, I also uh, graduated from BSU in 2016. And I uh, most recently ran for mayor and then again, state senator, even more recently. <laughs> but keep on running. I the thing is, politics is corrupt and the wrong people are running because people tell them to run because they give them money and they make it easy for them. And, mm-hmm. and so somebody like me, you know, it's like Abe Lincoln took him like six elections. Right. So I look at myself like, hey, I have I have three more elections before, you know, Abe Lincoln is like, yeah, I can't run again. And it's like, yeah, Abe Lincoln's time was different, too. <sighs> no, I know. You know, the college and, and all this stuff. I don't know if I have had a purpose in life to do whatever, change the world. I think I have changed the community and the world. Um, I know during the mayor election, a lot of stuff I talked about, they actually are doing right now. And I basically uh, proctored the discussion. Everything we talked about in the live debate and the discussion forums, they went on to talk. And, and if I wasn't there, nobody would have said so anything. So you had influence over the debate and and, cha- and therefore you could change yes. policy. And, you know, some people, a lot of people hate on me and they're like, oh, you're never going to win or this and that. You know, even like certain parts of Boise, the north end, downtown, they look down on somebody like me who's Hispanic, military, comes from a poor background that doesn't have a lot of money now. And... uh you know, I didn't realize Boise had that type of bigotry, and they do. They'll try to say that these people are bigots now because of the Confederate flag and the Blue Lives Matter people and all these people going and harassing the mayor, but they're doing the same thing at the mm-hmm. same token. And so, you know, it's like, but, you know, it, what it all comes down to the, the mental health aspect of it all, it basically, you know, my message to people is that you can have stuff happen to you and you can survive and, and make it. You know, not everybody's going to be like me. I was an asterisk. Even one of my counselors, you know, we took a poll and we did all this stuff and, and he talked about my past and did some uh, questions. One, two, three, four, you know, uh, it, like basically kind of like a test. He added it up and it's like, you should be, you should be in prison. You should be, you know, you should have been in jail. You should have been already on drugs in high school and these things. And I just have always been an asterisk just because of how I was raised and foster care and made me tough and. Um, you know, part of that, the negative aspect and I've told a lot of people, it's hard for me to date and be intimate with somebody because I'm so closed up, but that's how I protect myself. So it's like, doesn't make me the best person, you know, for mental health or whatever, because I've been able to survive and adapt. And, and like I, I tell people adapt, overcome, achieve, just like the military. So you're saying that you've been able to survive in part by ignoring your mental health because you're keeping it, you're burying it. And when someone tries to get close to you, they're not able to, because that's all in there somewhere. Kind of, I, you know, I don't, I don't hide it like I used to, like right after I got out of the military, uh, you know, I've talked to people, I've, I had a relationship and I was failed, but I had a decent relationship and, you know, even recently I've met a lot of friends and, and I've had relationships with women that just because we're not dating, you know, we're still intimate or whatever. And, uh, my family and my friends, and I've met a lot of cool people in my work, and I've told them a lot about what's happened to me. And, and running for office, when you run for public office, everybody sees you. And, and I, I've been very vulnerable. I told people I was in foster care and did all these things. And and I, I met a lot of really cool people on the campaign trail, and they're just like, oh, my God, that's so awesome. you know. And then I met the NAMI people, and they talked about mental mm-hmm. health awareness. And I said, I, I brought it to the forefront, actually, in the mayoral race. Nobody else talked about it. But mm-hmm. I told people... I've had these issues. I got, uh, I have disability from the VA for my hearing and, um, anxiety disorder, which is multiple things, including depression. And 
I tell people that you can have these things, but it doesn't mean that it has to cripple you. Yeah. Some people are crippled. Like my mom, no matter what she did, even if she sought help, she just never would have been able to, you know, be what, what I am, for instance. And, you know, she was a good person, though. My mom, I look back and I didn't have a good relationship with her, but I finally forgave her and we sang out and I took her out to uh, breakfast for her birthday and, and she took me out and, and we sang out and listened to music in my car because I grew up really listening to music and she loved music. She passed away about three years ago and, uh, you know, I forgave her because she wasn't a bad person. Just because you have mental health problems and you, can, you know. Well, you, people make mistakes so it doesn't mean they're bad. Yes. You know, she wasn't a, she was a bad parent. But she wasn't a bad person, if yeah, you know what I'm saying. I know. So, you know, I I forgave her and uh, I learned a lot from her. And so for the future and, you know. So what advice would you have in closing to people listening to this podcast? I would say that if you really want to help, like, get help, you need to seek it. It's you. Nobody can fix you. Your parents, your wife, your kids. You have to be the one to fix yourself. And it doesn't mean, you know, um, this or that or or, or being uh, like some of the old institutional ways. You need to go to a crazy house or take medicine or anything like that. You need to find out what's best for yourself. Everybody has a different case. You know, you might enjoy medicinals, you know, botanicals that are illegal in Idaho. But, <laughs> well, let's not indicate it was legal in Idaho. <laughs> or, or, you know, obviously medicine. You might need depression medicine, anxiety medicine. In the crazy house is an institution. It's actually, you know, a mental health institution and it's okay yes. to go there. I've been yes. to Allenbaugh House. I've had to go when I first had my, what well, was my first manic episode, but my second manic episode and I didn't know I was bipolar and I finally got a diagnosis and I wanted to kill myself and I told my ex-husband I want to kill myself and, and he had my son call me my son called me he's like hi mommy like how are you and just normal conversation but i realized i don't want to die i'm like this, yeah. this isn't where my story ends i'm gonna fight for my life and so i went to alamba house and i fought really fucking hard and i'm still fighting every day yeah exactly you just don't a lot of people just they give up or they don't honestly it's not even them per se it's they don't have a good family or they don't have a support structure is huge yeah you gotta get people in your life that got your back you gotta get out of toxic relationships you gotta have yes. out of toxic loops with people that don't friends. serve you it yeah your friends like, or your family it could be a, a career that you're in that that like you said that second brigade that you're in that was toxic and the first one was you know great and so your tour service was easier and then you got into a bad one and it was harder and mental health became more of an issue because people didn't have each other's backs there were no. douchebags trying to screw over other people for fun and manipulate people and that's not cool everything you're describing is like in the military happens in life here too yes exactly and and people need to understand the message that i have to them is they can be like me you know mm -hmm. they can they can survive they can they can take if they need to take medicine uh if they don't need to take medicine if they need to go and uh you know go to the edge of the world to the south of peru you know mm -hmm. go go and live on an island by themselves um you do what you maybe, gotta do yeah exactly maybe get into a, a relationship with somebody that's different so you were in five toxic relationships and with the same you like the same people like how they look and how they act get with somebody new that's different that's kind of weird or don't date or, yeah exactly stay don't, to yourself yeah just hang out you know have mm -hmm. some friends get out of toxic relationships and family i think is the biggest crippler because 
everybody says family, you know, this and that, blood. And it's like sometimes, no, family will screw you over the worst. And that's happened in my own life. So, yeah, you have you just have to be aware of toxic relationships and be able to get help extracting yourself from them. And you go to therapy and you get case managers and CBRS workers and peer support like myself. Like there's a whole team of people ready for you here in Idaho that you can get that will help you form a plan to get out of your relationships and to get healthy. And that's possible for every person. Yes. If they only want to try, if they put the initiative out there and they go for it. Yes, exactly. You, you know, that the help is out there. Uh, you know, if you really need it, there's phone numbers, there's Facebook, mm-hmm. there's, there's websites. On my website, um, on soundmindpodcast.com, there's a get help session, that section that has a whole list of, of resources for people in every demographic, LGBTQ people, domestic violence, suicide, everything you can imagine is on there. And if it's not on there and you need it, reach out and let me know and I'll help you find it. Yeah. They, um, basically, uh, I did, you know, I did all that. I took medicine. I, um, you know, went to, I, I seen, uh, counselors, um, psychologists in the military. They didn't necessarily help per se, but they will give you a real diagnosis and they can uh, give you medicine. You might not have been in the right environment for them to help. That too. And, uh, basically the best thing is, is peers, like people who, in your career field or whatever you're doing, even the military people who are, you know, higher ranking with mm-hmm. more experience, uh, you just have to find, I think that's some of the best people who can talk to you and tell you stuff because they actually walked in your shoes. So I know a lot of military people don't trust civilians. Like you're going to have some civilian guy or even a, a military psychologist who's never really done anything, but just, you know, be a psychologist in the military. He's never deployed or anything. So people need somebody that they can trust and you know i tell people like me i'm somebody and a lot of people come to me all the time people after running for office i you know i'm friends with all these people i'm friends with thousands of people on so you know social media and even military people that still come and talk to me and i just it feels good because at least i know that people you know know that i'm mature and i understand about mental health and and the seriousness of it. And I joke around a lot. I, I do. I'm a joker in a sense, like at work, especially people, sometimes you don't take it serious enough. I'm like, you take it too seriously. It could lead to your suicide. You have to be loosen up, have fun after being deployed twice and seeing everything I see. I will never be that serious ever again. <laughs> no matter what job, if I was in the military again, you just have to relax, be light. And that'll help you, you know, especially if somebody like me, I'm actually really high strung and I have high blood pressure, mm-hmm. but I find ways to basically keep myself calm and tranquil and, uh, you know, relax, keep the mood light and, uh, you know, do what I can do. And I still have a lot of stuff to do. It's going to be tough. You know, I'm about to be 30 and I still have been elected and I don't have a professional career per se. I have a good job, but uh, okay, you're a work in progress like the rest of us. Yeah, no, I am, and I will keep working. I've hit the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. There's just not much, you know. There's like maybe two things that could be worse than what I've been through. So I basically, you know, I've done the ringer. So I'm just pushing forward. If you're listening and you hear this podcast, remember, there's always somebody you can reach out to me or her. Mm-hmm. anybody and we can if we don't know the issue we don't know the diagnosis we can always refer you to somebody else there's professionals well, out that's there that's the thing there's always a gateway to help always and if there's not then we'll build one 
We'll figure it out. You're not alone. Exactly. And you rock, Shannon. Thanks. Thanks for coming to my podcast show.